This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, here today with Dr. Linda Bluestein. Before we introduce today's special guest, please remember to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This really helps grow the audience and increase awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. This podcast is for you. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Svetlana Bleachstein, board-certified neurologist and director of the Dysautonomia Clinic. She's also the clinical assistant professor of neurology at the University at Buffalo Jacobs School of Medicine and Biomedical Sciences. Dr. Bleachstein completed her neurology training at Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Medicine and is a member of the American Academy of Neurology and American Autonomic Society. She serves on the Medical Advisory Board for multiple nonprofits, including Dysautonomia International, Dysautonomia Information Network, and the Ehlers-Danlos Society. Dr. Bleachstein has been an invited speaker at national and international conferences, including at the World Health Organization. Dr. Bleachstein has been the principal investigator on a number of important research studies concerning POTS and autoimmunity, POTS and pregnancy, POTS and vitamin deficiencies, and others. She co-authored a popular patient handbook called POTS, Together We Stand, Riding the Waves of Dysautonomia, and has been interviewed by numerous media outlets, including U.S. News and World Report, Medscape, Neurology Today, New Scientist, and others. She's the recipient of the Patient's Choice Award 2019 from Dysautonomia Support Network, Business First 40 Under 40 Award, Mayo Clinic Neurology Research Award, the American Headache Society U.S. Human Health Award, the American Academy of Neurology Student Prize, and others. Dr. Bleachstein, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you so much for having me today. So let's start with the basics. What exactly is dysautonomia? Dysautonomia simply means abnormal autonomic nervous system, and it's synonymous with the autonomic dysfunction of any kind. It's not a diagnosis, it's a descriptive term, kind of like headache, which doesn't specify what type of headache or why the headache is taking place. Uh, it's important to remind ourselves that there is sympathetic, parasympathetic, and enteric nervous system, and each of these systems can malfunction, resulting in specific syndromes and disorders. Within this umbrella term of dysautonomia, there are specific diagnoses with their objective criteria that have been defined. None of these autonomic disorder diagnoses are subjective and all have objective clinical criteria. The diagnosis relies on the assessment of blood pressure and heart rate in the supine and standing position using a simple 10-minute stand test that can be performed at the doctor's office or a tilt table test. Excellent. Okay, so what might make someone suspect that they have some sort of dysautonomia? So uh, clinical symptoms of dysautonomia are numerous. And the most common ones are 
orthostatic intolerance. That's the defining feature of an autonomic disorder. And what that means is a difficulty standing with multiple sim symptoms arising on standing position and symptoms improving when you sit down or lie down. Uh, of course, uh, this is the hallmark, uh, but there are other symptoms such as chronic dizziness, patience, tachycardia, lightheadedness, headaches, brain fog, sleep problems, and many others. Okay, so are there specific populations that might be at a higher risk for dysautonomia? And, and as we are the Bendy Bodies podcast, um, why should bendy people? Why should hypermobile people know about it? Um, so dysautonomia, uh, again, as an umbrella term, encompasses a wide variety of autonomic disorders. The most common ones being postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome and neurocardiogenic syncope. Both of these disorders commonly occur in young women between ages 15 and 50, but of course younger patients and older patients can also have POTS or neurocardiogenic syncope. Many of these women are um, of childbearing age and most of the young women are Caucasian. Uh, how it relates to benzibasis? Well, we know that one of the common comorbidities of POTS is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Uh, and multiple studies showing a prevalence of about 25 to 30%. Uh, and uh, commonly when we have patients with POTS, uh, we must think about evaluation and um, assessment for Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Mm -hmm. So you often will, if you see someone who has uh, hypermobility in POTS, that will lead you to talk about looking at uh, an EDS diagnosis. Um, well, uh, so in my clinic, of course, I have many patients with EDS and POTS. Um, and how I figure this out is from history. You know, when patients present to us, they're not gonna volunteer this textbook information. Mm -hmm. Some will say that they have been hypermobile, uh, but many will present with complaints of joint pain, uh, body pain, easily dislocatable joints, easy bruising, and many other manifestations. So it's up to us uh, clinicians to listen to the history and figure out, is this a patient that may have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome? Uh, on another hand, one may say that anyone presenting with POTS um, uh, should be screened for EDS, and that's certainly a good practice in uh, those of us who see a large number of patients with POTS. So we know that in 2017, the criteria for um, hypermobile, the criteria for all the Ehlers-Danlos syndromes changed with the International Consortium, right? So, but in particular, the criteria changed for hypermobile EDS, and then they introduced the new classification um, HSD or hypermobility spectrum disorders. In in your experience. Does the overlap between dysautonomia and specifically POTS, um, does that hold true also for the hypermobility spectrum disorders or is that more specific to EDS? Oh, it's a great question, and I don't think there is an answer to that. Uh, all of the studies that have been done are looking at association between POTS and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, specifically 
the hypermobile type. Uh, but of course, you know, the hypermobility spectrum disorders are much more common. And the hypermobility as a sign is very common. Uh, and by no means they constitute a disorder. This is something I have to always remind my neurology colleagues who think, uh, well, everyone, you know, all of the young women who present with migraine or uh, dizziness, all of them are quite hypermobile. They're all gymnasts or dancers or swimmers. Uh, but of course, we have to make a distinction that having a hypermobility as a sign absolutely does not constitute a hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. There are criteria that needs to be met there. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. So um, when you're talking about um, looking at POTS with hypermobility, um, you said earlier that you do, a, there are a couple of really easy tests for POTS, the stand test and the table test. Um, what, is there more of a diagnostic workup that is recommended for POTS and how prevalent is that kind of a workup? Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll describe how I do uh, these evaluations because I think it's important for clinicians to hear um, what the process may be. So all, as all neurologic evaluations, I start with a physical exam after I take a thorough history and listen to the patients and all of the complaints. And the physical exam includes orthostatic blood pressure and heart rate measurement. You lay down the patient, allow them to rest for a few minutes, and then you measure their blood pressure and heart rate. After that, you stand them up, check their blood pressure and heart rate again in the increments of two to three minutes for a 10-minute stand test. And this easy in-office test is very important because it can give you clues whether a disorder of the orthostatic intolerance is present. And now in the time of social distancing, I ask the patient to perform the same test in the comfort of their own home. And this gives me a good approximation of what their vital signs are doing while they're supine and standing. Following that, it's important to do a full neurologic exam with a special attention to the sensory exam because at least 50% of patients with spots have comorbid small fiber neuropathy. Um, regarding diagnostic tests, I usually order a lot of tests to look for possible underlying causes, to exclude POTS mimics, and to look for common comorbid conditions. Some specialists, however, and even some consensus statements recommend minimal workup, and that usually includes EKG, basic blood work, and thyroid function tests. But personally, I prefer to go beyond that in order to be thorough and not to miss any other diagnosis. Uh, so typically, my patients have seen at least a dozen of other physicians, and the basic workup is complete by the time they see me. In terms of neurologic evaluation, if the patient has headache, which, you know, the most common comorbidity with POTS and also Ehlers-Danlos, I obtain MRI of the brain without contrast um, one time to rule out structural abnormalities like ER malformation. And in patients with spots, MRI of the brain is usually entirely normal, which can be very reassuring. 
Um, um, on that note, if there is a significant sleep disturbance, which can happen in our patients with POTS and certainly in patients with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I refer the patient for a sleep study obstructive sleep apnea, central sleep apnea, narcolepsy, and other sleep disorders that may be present. In many cases, I refer the patient for a tilt table test for a diagnostic confirmation, because in some cases where access to a tilt table test is difficult, um, I rely on the, on the 10 minute. So in some cases where access to a tilt table test is difficult, I rely on the 10 minute stand test, which we call a poor man's tilt table test. But most of the time when there is access to tilt table tests, I certainly order that. Mm. That's great. Thank you. You mentioned uh, small fiber neuropathy. Um, I know there are other issues, the Chiari malformation. So I'm wondering, first of all, purely out of curiosity on my side, just from what I've seen with some of my dancers, do you see a fair amount of Chiari malformations in people with connective tissue disorders? Um, yes, in patients with Ehlers-Danlos, I certainly mm -hmm. see more Chiari malformation. Uh, mm -hmm. But if you ask me that question uh, in terms of my POTS patients, I would have to say no. Could you just explain for the listeners that are not familiar, could you explain what both Chiari malformation and small fiber neuropathy, what they are and why they are relevant in this conversation? Um, Chiari malformation refers usually to a congenital uh, malformation of the cerebellum, uh, the back part of the brain, uh, where normally it has to be above the foramen magnum, which is an opening between the skull and the spine. And um, Chiari, in Chiari malformation, you have cerebellum, specifically the cerebellar tonsils protruding down through the foramen uh, foramen magnum, uh, and if it's uh, protruding more than by five millimeters down, uh, that can be symptomatic. Um, the symptoms that may include those that uh, are related to the obstruction of the CSF flow, of the spinal um, cerebral flow, uh, and also those that can potentially um, uh, compress brainstem and the cerebellum itself. Naturally, when you have a connective tissue disorder with weakness and abnormalities in collagen, um, ligaments and even muscles may become loose and uh, no longer normal in structure or function. Uh, and that weakness in uh, ligamental tissue may result in protrusion of, um, of brainstem. Uh, cerebellum. Similarly, you know, elsewhere in the body, you may have similar situations where we refer that to hernia, where mm -hmm. a, you know, where organs or tissues protrude through a weak um, muscular wall. So small fiber neuropathy refers to a um, um, abnormal structure of small nerve fibers that are everywhere in the body. And autonomic neuropathy isn't the same as small fiber neuropathy. There needs to be this distinction made. Um, a thin, unmyelated uh, alpha and delta fibers that um, 
um, underlie small fibers um, may be damaged and they may be damaged by toxins, medications, antibodies, uh, alcohol, diabetes, and many other conditions, uh, which results in uh, neuropathic pain and objective findings that we see on neurologic exam, which traditionally includes loss of um, uh, temperature sensation and pain sensation. And that's a very important part of neurologic exam. That's how we can identify our patients with spots and Ehlers-Danlos who may have small fiber neuropathy. Uh, at least 50% of patients with spots have small fiber neuropathy, objectively confirmed. And at least 70% of patients with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome also have small fiber neuropathy. It's very important for clinicians to identify that. And the way to diagnose it is, of course, we ask questions on history and the questions will be surrounding neuropathic pain. Not always the patients will have burning pain or numbness tingling. Sometimes they will have itching. Sometimes they will describe a full body pain, a bone kind of pain. Sometimes they'll describe this as having rubber bands on their uh, feet. And sometimes they will describe the pain as uh, uh, a sensation of heat or having heavy legs. Uh, and when we have this history, and we have findings on our exam of sensory dysfunction, we must obtain very important two tests. One is a test of EMG, which is a test of muscles and nerves that will identify whether the patient has large fiber neuropathy. And the second test is a skin biopsy to um, um, investigate whether the patient has small fiber neuropathy. So very important point is that when we in medical world suspect that our patient has neuropathy, we must, uh, we must order two tests. One is EMG, test of large fibers, and another test is a skin biopsy or test of small fibers. There is also uh, a full autonomic function test that uh, is only available in certain areas of the country and is, unfortunately isn't available to all of us everywhere. But there is an important test there called QSART, quantitative pseudomotor X and reflex test that can uh, measure sweat output and determine whether a patient has uh, small fiber neuropathy uh, with that method. Very Excellent. good. And, and we wanted to have a little bit more of an explanation in terms of um, uh, syncope, you had mentioned earlier, like neurocardiogenic syncope. And mm -hmm. again, some of our listeners, they hear the word syncope, they'll know what that means. Others, others won't. So could you just explain a little bit more about that? Sure. Neurocardiogenic syncope is a condition that usually is viewed as an episodic autonomic disorder, meaning that in between the episodes of syncope, the patient remains asymptomatic. Now, We've got to make this distinction. Syncope is very common in everyone. So in a lifetime, at least 25% of all patients may have a syncopal event, especially when they're younger. And that accounts for a great majority of ER presentations. And this is what we call a simple syncope, simple, simple faint, simple, simple syncope, or simple vasovagal syncope as it 
is commonly called in the medical world. Uh, these are events that are common and not necessarily representative of a disorder. This becomes only a disorder when syncope is repetitive uh, and occurs to a significant frequency. It obviously becomes disabling when it occurs very frequently and impairs your functional status. And clearly it becomes extremely disabling when you have syncope every time you stand up. Uh, it does commonly affect young people. Uh, it can uh, occur um, with the onset of puberty, uh, which is the most common age of onset, not only for neurocardiogenic syncope, it also commonly, uh, it's a common age of onset for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. During a period of growth spurt or um, during uh, the onset of menstruation, uh, one can have these um, uh, dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system. Again, in and of itself, it may not represent a disorder, uh, but when it's repetitive and affects your function, and when it's repetitive and affects your functional status, then uh, it becomes a medical condition that needs medical attention. Uh, briefly put, syncope just means an abrupt loss of uh, cerebral blood flow. And when that happens, uh, obviously you fall down. Uh, and that's sort of about this natural way in restoring cerebral perfusion and blood flow back to your brain. So syncope is basically when you can have syncope or presyncope also, right? So people can have syncope or complete loss of consciousness, or they can feel like they're going to pass out. Both of those would mm -hmm. happen in like, for example, POTS. Is that, is that true? Okay, so let's let's make some distinctions here. Okay. POTS is defined. Uh, um, so POTS as a disorder has three clinical criteria. One is you need to meet a criteria of an increase in heart rate by at least thirty beats per minute within ten minutes stand test or a tilt table test and at least 40 bits per minute in teenagers or those uh, who are under, under the age of 19. That's criteria number one. Criteria number two is blood pressure remains stable during that time. Uh, and criteria number three is the chronicity of symptoms where symptoms must be present, symptoms of orthostatic intolerance must be present for at least six months. That's the definition of, of POTS. So the definition of neurocardiogenic syncope uh, is an abrupt drop in both heart rate and blood pressure within 10 minutes of standing associated with loss of consciousness. Uh, and that's the criteria for neurocardiogenic syncope. We also have a criteria for orthostatic hypotension, which is another common disorder, uh, that involves a drop in blood pressure by more than 20 over 10 millimeters of mercury within three minutes of a tilt table test. Um, uh, and if the heart rate does not rise in compensation to a decreasing blood pressure, we call that neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. So now we know these three distinct patterns. Now you asked a very important question, in POTS, do these patients pass out? Do they come close? 
what's going on there. Uh, so, of course, if we go by defined clinical criteria, once you meet criteria for PATS, by exclusion, you cannot meet criteria for neurocardiogenic syncope. However, if you go to the clinical world of reality, you know that some patients will faint as well. In addition to having POTS, some patients will faint. At least 25 to 30% of patients with POTS can faint. Mm -hmm. Most patients do not. Most patients come close. They feel like they're going to faint, but they never do what we call presyncope. And we think it's because the physiology is still compensating uh, when you have a kind of a slower decrease in uh, cerebral perfusion. Perhaps you have activation of autonomic reflexes that are still preserving, you know, based on this increase in heart rate, that are still preserving some perfusion to the brain. And therefore, you do not test out. So it's a very important distinction to make. Now, some people will have abnormal tilt table tests showing neurocardiogenic syncope. And as I mentioned before, traditionally neurocardiogenic syncope is viewed as an episodic disorder, meaning that in between the episodes of syncope, the patient should be asymptomatic. Again, when you um, practice in reality, in reality, there are also patients who have neurocardiogenic syncope confirmed by a tilt table test, they pass out, and in between the episodes of syncope, they will have disabling symptoms such as fatigue, lightheadedness, dizziness, headaches, and all the rest of the symptoms of dysautonomia. So I wanted to follow up with you on some of the things that you mentioned with the fatigue and the headaches. Um, can you go a little bit more into what are some of the common symptoms um, and comorbidities that might go along with people who have been diagnosed with POTS? We divide symptoms of POTS into two categories. One is orthostatic. So there are orthostatic symptoms such as orthostatic dizziness, palpitations, uh, lightheadedness, weakness, generalized weakness on assuming an upright posture, and overall feeling faint. And the second category is non-orthostatic symptoms. And these includes general symptoms such as fatigue, chronic dizziness, headaches, brain fog, which is difficulty concentrating and, and other symptoms of cognitive dysfunction, uh, sleep disturbance, um, uh, and sometimes uh, alterations in mood. These are the non-orthostatic symptoms of dysautonomia. Comorbidities are very common. As I always say, POTS uh, rarely exists alone. At least 80% of patients with POTS have significant comorbidity, at least one. The most common comorbidity, uh, as I mentioned before, is small fiber neuropathy occurring in at least 50% of patients with POTS. Another very common comorbidity is headache. Um, headache uh, occurs in at least 40% of patients with POTS. A third common comorbidity is Ehlers-Danlos, uh, occurring in at least 25% of patients with POTS. And then we have other comorbidities. Uh, one of them is uh, mast cell activation syndrome. Another is irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, there are comor comorbid autoimmune conditions affecting at least 25% of all patients with POTS, with the most common um, autoimmune condition being Hashimoto's thyroiditis. 
Excellent. Thank you. And you wrote a paper on uh, B1 deficiency in, in POTS. Would you be able to elaborate on that a little bit? Okay. Um, vitamin deficiency is quite common in our patients, with the most common being iron deficiency without anemia. Levels of vitamin B12 also appear to be lower in our patients compared to the age match. Levels of vitamin B12 also appear to be lower in our patients compared to the age-matched controls. In terms of vitamin B1 deficiency, uh, I am aware only of my study. Uh, and in my cohort of 65 patients, the prevalence of vitamin B1 deficiency was 4%. Unfortunately, only one patient out of that um, case series uh, recovered with vitamin B1 supplementation. Regardless of that fact, I personally always check all of my patients with POTS for common vitamin deficiencies, including B12, B1, D, uh, iron, uh, B6, and others. Excellent. Thank you. And looking at, um, looking at these disorders, at POTS specifically, but also some of the others that you've talked about, just so people know, how disabling can these disorders be? And, and especially if not diagnosed and treated, and how could someone avoid getting to that point? So um, uh, it's a very good question. From uh, multiple studies, we know that POTS can be quite disabling as disabling as congestive heart failure or uh, COPD. And at least 25% of our patients are unable to work or attend school. Um, and the uh, prognosis uh, has been a little tricky um, a question. You know, about a decade ago, there was a notion among our colleagues that teens outgrow POTS. Um, this statement came from, from one earlier study that suggested that 80% of patients no longer experience POTS five years after diagnosis. Many of us who specialize in POTS simply weren't seeing these high numbers in real life. More recently, there was a study out of Mayo Clinic that painted a more realistic picture by demonstrating that only about 50% of teens with POTS improve but only 19% fully recover. And that was with a mean follow-up of five years. Mm. So, you know, while, while we would love to tell patients that POTS has a, you know, a good chance of recovery, I think reality is that POTS is going to be a chronic disorder that can fluctuate in severity for a majority of patients. Mm. And the range of severity varies greatly with some patients being able to work, travel, and participate in sports, while others will have significant difficulty doing all of those things. So I think a realistic approach to long-term prognosis is a lot better than painting a rosy picture and telling patients, young patients that may outgrow POTS in their 20s only to get their hopes shattered when that doesn't happen. 
Now, having said that, teens appear to have a better prognosis than adults with spots, and I certainly have patients who were very sick during their teen years and unable to attend school, but then improved enough to be able to attend college and do other age-appropriate things. So, uh, in summary, I tell my patients that prognosis is hopeful, but expectations for a full recovery need to be tapered and lifestyle adjustments, as well as some form of medical management should be expected. And, and I wanted to follow up with actually this, um, what you were just saying in terms of expectations and this age group, um, I'm thinking that this ties in with the B1 question that um, this is a group of kids that would be doing, like you said, age appropriate things, which of course in also includes um, drinking alcohol in many instances as they turn 21. And, but with the potential for B, vitamin B deficiencies, and of course, the potential effects of alcohol on other you know, hemodynamic um, variables. I guess, do you have any advice for uh, you know, listeners about that? Um, interestingly, a lot of our patients have alcohol intolerance. They're not drinkers. Mm. They figure out early on that uh, alcohol makes them feel worse. Uh, alcohol may result in a drop in blood pressure. Alcohol uh, causes flushing and may call, lead to mast cell activation. Uh, alcohol causes sleep disturbance. Alcohol can cause uh, uh, balance difficulties. So many of our patients um, do not drink hardly drinkers. Sometimes adults would be able to tolerate a glass of wine here and there, but a majority of our patients do not consume alcohol. Now, teens will be teens and college students will be college students. Um, but I do advise to stay away from alcohol. And if you have to socialize and if you have to go to a party, uh, limit your alcohol intake to no more than one drink per night. And that's very little in the grand scheme of things, but uh, it's not worse, you know, causing a, an exacerbation of your POTS and other comorbid conditions. And it's not worse ending up missing the next day of school because the day before, the night before, you were drinking alcohol. So being very cognizant of negative impact of alcohol on our patients, yet understanding that saying don't ever drink alcohol or you shouldn't drink alcohol at all isn't also realistic. So limit your alcohol intake if you must to no more than one drink. And of course, if you have to drink, don't drive, ask for a ride. <laughs> Excellent, thank you. Um, and then I'm wondering in, in this whole big picture, how does autoimmunity fit into all of this? There has been significant research interest in the past few years to determine whether POTS is an autoimmune disorder. And while we haven't conclusively answered this question thoroughly yet, it does appear that POTS may have a strong autoimmune basis. Years ago, I received a grant to study autoimmune markers and autoimmune disorders in patients with POTS. I noticed that a significant number of my POTS patients had positive markers of autoimmunity and comorbid autoimmune disorders. And we, when we applied statistical analysis, we did find that POTS patients had a higher prevalence of antinuclear antibodies, antiphospholipid antibodies, and other autoimmune markers than the general population. The prevalence of most defined autoimmune conditions 
was higher in my cohort of 100 patients with spots than in general population. Uh, with any type of autoimmune disorders affecting one in five patients with spots, and Hashimoto's thyroiditis being the most prevalent condition affecting about 11% of our patients. So over the past few years, various antibodies have been identified in patients with spots. These antibodies are critical to the structure and function of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So it makes sense that these antibodies would be potential biomarkers in this disorder. Now, last year, we have made significant progress when an animal model was introduced by Dr. David Kim from the University of Oklahoma, who immunized rabbits with adrenergic receptor peptide and simulated POTS in rabbits. All of these findings undoubtedly have therapeutic implications with immunotherapy, which is already being used in certain selected patients with POTS quite effectively. So are you referring to subcutaneous uh, gamma globulins and also IVIG? And if so, um, can you tell us a little bit more about the when it's appropriate to do that lab testing? I know as of at least fairly recently, insurance often did not cover the testing. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Um, yes. Uh, so the uh, topic of immunotherapy in patients with spots is growing. Uh, there, is a, there is emerging evidence through large case series and small case series that immunotherapy in the form of IVIG and sometimes plasmapheresis have been very effective in, in our most disabled patients with spots refractory to standard medications. Uh, and interestingly, you mentioned subcutaneous immunoglobulin. Uh, I am presenting uh, a case series of patients with spots who improved significantly with subcutaneous immunoglobulin. Um, uh, I am presenting this uh, research at the upcoming American Autonomic Society meeting in November. Um, what we know is that many of these patients have positive antibodies, whether it's gonna be adrenergic antibodies that as you know, unfortunately are not available on clinical basis to obtain in the United States, whether it's gonna be anti-nuclear antibodies, whether it's gonna be antiphospholipid antibodies, there is always some kind of abnormal autoimmune marker. And that's very important because this further suggests that in these patients refractory to standard therapy, and by standard therapy, I don't mean, you know, fluids and salt intake. I mean all of the available medications that we have for POTS. These patients have failed, have not improved, are essentially bed bound, uh, that we should consider immunotherapy in these patients. Now, large studies, uh, um, clinical trials, placebo control, controlled studies are underway to determine whether IVIG uh, is effective in patients with severe POTS. But until those studies become available, 
as we know, these studies take a long time and a lot of resources to complete. We already have preliminary evidence from real life cases and case series that outline significant improvement in these patients. For example, in my case series, you know, uh, two patients have gone from bed bound to working full time. Uh, when wow. they were given subcutaneous immunoglobulin in the span of six to nine months. So you need to uh, be very cognizant and we need to push the insurance companies to cover these uh, effective therapies because the cost of coverage of immunoglobulin, whether in the IVI, in the intravenous or subcutaneous cost, is going to be a lot less than the cost of covering uh, medical uh, care for a very disabled individual who is 20, 30 years old uh, and have many years ahead of them. So that's a very important point that we need to emphasize. Similarly, you know, a lot of my patients ask me, well, can I get IVIG? Because they have heard that IVIG can be very effective. We need to understand that IVIG is a blood product, that IVIG is very expensive, that insurance needs to cover it. Uh, and not everyone who walks through your door as a POTS patient will, will need to have IVIG. You need to go through the standard therapy first. So we have to emphasize to the patients, clinicians, and insurance companies that it's only those who are refractory, who fail to improve with standard medications, who are very disabled, young people who are unable to participate in school or work, those are the patients that need to be tried on uh, immunotherapy. Excellent, thank you. Well, you have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today we've been speaking with Dr. Svetlana Bleachstein, board certified neurologist and director of the Dysautonomia Clinic. Dr. Svetlana Blitzstein, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast and sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies and on facebook at bendy bodies podcast the thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests they do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization the thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever this podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. 
This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.